right. Well, our text is uh, Acts chapter 16. And it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on a Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we, met, uh, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, "'Do not harm yourself!' for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates 
have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would uh, instruct our hearts, teach us the way we should go, that your name might be feared and honored among us. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, I, when thinking about this text, I thought, do I have everybody stand up the whole time? Because it's a long text, and we don't, normally, uh, we don't normally read text quite that long, but I just couldn't break up the text. It, it's too good. The chapter is just too full of excitement. Uh, it's got everything a good story should have. It's got dreams, conversions, exorcisms, riots, imprisonments, escapes, earthquakes, all kinds of wonderful stuff. But if we're honest, it's probably stuff that most of us can't say, I know what that's like. I resonate with that. I doubt many of us have been freed from a prison by an earthquake. Uh, Probably many of us, or most all of us, if not all of us, we've not been beaten for Jesus. We've not cast out evil spirits. And if that's true, that we can't resonate very easily with the events of this chapter, how should the church benefit from the chapter? These things are written for the church, so what should we do with it? When I was young, I remember my mother would keep bowls of potpourri in the house. Imagine your parents probably did similar things. Uh, You know, she'd put them in the bathroom or in the living room, and they were nice. But eventually the smell goes away, and they're just left for decoration until you leave them so long that they get dusty, and then they need to be thrown out. And I think often we look at the stories of the Bible like potpourri. They're nice. They're decorative, mostly to be left alone. Potpourri leaves a nice, you know, impact in your house that makes it smell better, but it doesn't change the house. It doesn't determine what goes on inside the house. The Bible for many people, even many confessing Christians, uh, may make them feel better about life, but it doesn't shape their lives. God's Word should not be like a bowl of potpourri left on the shelf to get dusty and thrown away. The Bible should be like your favorite coffee mug. that You use it all the time. You've used it so much you can't get the ring of coffee out of it anymore because it has been so stained by its excessive use. We want the Bible to have a staining effect on our lives, to to mark us in unmistakable ways. And even this crazy chapter, even uh, earthquakes and imprisonments and so forth, even this stuff can have that impact on us. It can color and stain our lives in such a way that we can find unity with its characters. And that's what we want to see in God's Word today. A major theme that we're going to see in this chapter is when God fights your battles. You know that God fights your battles? He does. 
It's something we can actually all relate to, even if it doesn't seem like it. God fights our battles. This chapter may not uh, have seemed like a battle text, but I assure you that it is. God is a God that fights. And many people don't know this. Uh, They think Jesus uh, came to die to make everyone nice so that we would have no need to fight. One pastor talks about the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. And he says, if you violate that commandment, it's actually worse than violating the Ten Commandments that God actually wrote. And we see this today, don't we? If someone thinks you're not being very nice, they'll probably tell you. They'll say something like, that's not very Christianly. Aren't you supposed to love your neighbor? Well, yes, church, we are supposed to love our neighbors. But to what end? We don't love our neighbors all the way to hell. We want to love them in a way that does not fear them or condone the things that God hates. We want to love them in a way where they are forced to grapple with the truth that sin is real and that what God says is right. If someone says to you, I don't believe in God, how do you love them? Do you love them by letting them proceed in their ignorance or by trying to show them that they're wrong? Love corrects. Love has a goal, and the goal is to see people reconciled to God, and God fights for that. Here's just a little bit of proof that God fights. Exodus chapter 13, verse 15 says this, For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. It's hard to read texts like that. We don't like to think of God that way. But God's not afraid of being thought of that way. He wrote the text. Here's another one. Exodus 14, 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Deuteronomy 129. Then I said to you, do not be afraid, or do not be, sorry, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did before you in Egypt, before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Then one more, Joshua Chapter 10 says, And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beit Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Church, God fights. He fights for his people. And again, what we're going to see in this chapter is what happens when God fights your battles. And we're going to see four things. When God fights your battles, there are uncertain assignments. Worship is your warfare. Light shines in deepest darkness, and your enemies are left afraid. 
when God fights your battles, there are uncertain assignments. Worship is your warfare. Light shines in deepest darkness, and your enemies are left afraid. So, let's see that in our text. The first thing is uncertain assignments. If you uh, are in the military, have been in the military, know somebody who's been in the military, um, you probably know that if they get a call to deploy, they don't know where they're going. The one in command decides that. They get to find out later. But wherever the commander sends them, that's where they go. They don't get the choice. In verses 6 through 10, Paul is planning to go to Asia to spread the gospel there, but he is prevented by God's Spirit. And so he decides he'll go to Bithynia, but he stopped there also. And then he has a dream where he's called to Macedonia, and so he goes there. But he doesn't know what he's going to find there. He doesn't know what he's going to see. And what he does there is actually not all that much. We see a couple of people are converted. There are a couple of families baptized, and an evil spirit is cast out, right? That's about all he did. It was a small battle. It was a short assignment, but it was a great victory. Much to Paul's surprise, his, uh, he was assigned to Macedonia, and the assignment landed him in prison. It was a tough and uncertain assignment, but God still won the battle. Secondly, we see when God fights your battles, worship is your warfare. When Paul arrived in Macedonia, what was he looking for? And says in verse uh, 13, on the Sabbath, uh, we went outside to the gate to the riverside. Uh, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. He was looking for a place of prayer, a place to worship. And there they encounter Lydia. And she believes and invites them to her home. And when they get back at it, in verse 16, it says, as they were going to the place of prayer. Now, it's very likely that the place of prayer was a synagogue. But I love that it's described here as a place of prayer. Because what happens next? Uh, in verse 24, uh, they were put in prison. Their feet were shackled. And what did they do? In verse 25, it says, about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to him. So Paul had been looking for this place of prayer and he found it. Paul found his place of prayer and it was in a prison. Worship was his warfare. When imprisoned, he prayed and he sang. And so verse 13, you go going to pray. Lydia becomes a believer. Verse 16, you're going to pray. They encounter a girl with an evil spirit, and it's cast out. Verse 25, chained up in prison, they're praying and singing, and a great earthquake shakes the prison, and conveniently, just so convenient, all the doors just open, and all the shackles fall off their feet. Worship is warfare. Thirdly, when God fights your battles, light shines in deepest darkness. Why was Paul thrown into prison? Because he cast out a dark spirit, an evil spirit. The light of truth banished darkness. And then what happens? Verse 23. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the inner prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, oh, sorry. 
inflicted many blows upon them, delivered them over to the jailer. Having received the order, he throws them into the inner prison, and he fastens their feet in the stocks. So they're in the deep prison, the, the high security prison. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. So the jailer was charged, don't lose Paul. So he throws them into the inner prison, and he fastens their feet in the stocks, and at midnight, in the dead of night, in the deep prison, God shows up. It was so dark that the jailer had to call for lights, but that didn't stop God. God shines even in deepest darkness. And then fourth, when God fights your battles, your enemies are left afraid. The leaders of Macedonia let a mob beat Paul and Silas and then stripped them and threw them in prison. And the next day, the police show up and they say, those guys can leave. And the jailer tells them, y'all can go. And what does Paul say? Verse 37, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now do they throw us out secretly? Hey, the beating was public. The imprisonment was public. Why are they now releasing us privately? I don't think so. So Paul says, no. Let them come themselves and take us out. We'd like an escort. And then verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized. This seems kind of crazy if we're honest. It's like, Paul, dude, they're letting you go. Just scram, right? They're obviously not afraid to throw an innocent person into prison. Just get out. They're letting you out. He says, nope, nope. He had great confidence even in such an uncertain assignment. So he says, I'm not leaving. They can come to me. And what's he got to be afraid of? What are they going to do? We'll throw you back in that prison. Uh-huh. You mean the one God just busted me out of? Okay, we'll see how that goes. He wasn't afraid. His enemies were afraid. This is what happens when God fights your battles. And now lest we think that this is like a, a one-time thing or a special apostle privilege, we're going to look at a few more things and see that this was not a one-time thing. This was not a pattern only for the apostles. This is a gospel thing. This is a gospel pattern. And if you want to know whether God fights for you, whether these four things still apply today, we actually need to look at Jesus. So why did Paul receive his uncertain assignment? Why was he unafraid of it? Why did he have confidence in the midst of it? Because he knew Jesus. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and what did he do? He also took on a very uncertain assignment. He did something totally new for God. He became human, and he did it to die. Jesus took on the uncertain assignment of sacrifice. But his confidence remained in his commander. The Father sent him, and he trusted his Father. The assignment was uncertain, but Christ took it. He took it on, and the Father did not abandon him in it. So church, let me ask, what's your assignment? 
What has God called you to do? You a new parent? Are you new to Fort Worth? Are you a new believer? Are you new to this church? Are you struggling with a 10-year-old kid at home? Are you struggling in a job you've had for the last 10 years? Is that still your assignment? Where has God assigned you to be? I imagine over the last year, we've asked many times things like, where are we? How did we get here? What's going on? Our assignments are uncertain. But what does that mean? Does it mean God has abandoned us? No. It means God is just preparing the way for the victory. We don't know what the victory looks like, but Paul shows us that victory happens even in prisons. So your assignment is uncertain, but that doesn't mean you're doing it alone. In Matthew 25, Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, he tells a parable of the talents. There was a wealthy man, and he gives his three servants large sums of money. He gives them talents. A talent was about 20 years' worth of wages. So he gives one servant five talents, and another two talents, and another one talent. He gave them an assignment. And then he goes on a journey. He wants them to be faithful in their assignment. And the guy with five talents goes out and he makes five more. And the man with two talents goes out and he makes two more. And the man with one talent buries it in the ground. He squandered his assignment. And when the rich man comes back and he sees the man who made five more talents, he says, great job, well done. The man who made two more, he says, well done. And to the man who buried it, he says, you wicked and slothful servant. You squandered your assignment. He had an assignment and he had received everything he needed to do it. But he didn't even do the minimum. The master says, you could have at least put it in the bank so that I could have come back and received some interest. He didn't even do that. God gives us assignments. They're uncertain. And it's because God wants us in positions like we read about in Exodus 14 when he said, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. He wants us in positions where we have to trust him. God has given you an assignment to follow him into so that you can watch him work. That's what God wants us to see is how he works. So who raised Jesus from the dead? God did. Who rescued Paul from the prison? God did. Who brought you to City Church? God did. Who gave us this COVID assignment? Who gave us this divided country? God did. Who measured out each and every one of your problems? That flat tire, that leaky faucet, the giant tree that produces a million leaves that you have to rake up, those differences with your spouse, the issue with that coworker. God assigned all of that to you. And why? Again, is it to abandon you? No. It's so that you could fight in it and watch God deliver you. This is how God has always worked with his people. He calls them to trust him, to give up control, to have faith. And God himself did it too. The Son of God became like one of us. Deity received the assignment of humanity. He trusted the Father. Even when the devil offered him another way. Bow down to me, I'll give you everything. He didn't do it. 
Jesus trusted the Father even in the garden when he was asking that the cup would pass from him. Jesus himself took on an uncertain assignment, and it was through that assignment that God fought and won the war for the world. So what do we do in our assignments? You man your post, and you fight. How do we fight? Again, worship. Worship is your warfare. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, starting in verse 3. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, so we are waging war, but the weapons for this war are not guns and swords. That's a different kind of war. The weapons for our warfare are not earthly. Why not? Because those weapons aren't strong enough. God has given us something far greater. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons of our warfare are from God's arsenal. And it says we destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So are we at war? You bet we are. What's our assignment? To destroy strongholds and every argument and lofty opinion raised against God. That's a pretty big assignment. Are we going to take captives in this war? Yes, we are. We're taking every thought captive. That means everyone needs to come with all that they are and bring it and bow before Jesus, worship and adore him. We saw in our text what happened when Paul worshipped. There was salvation. There was an exorcism. There was an earthquake. But it doesn't always look like that. God fights in different ways. How did God fight Egypt? He struck them. He punched them with plagues. In 2 Chronicles 20, there is an amazing, amazing battle scene. Uh, I read it and I feel like I'm reading something from Lord of the Rings. It's just epic. King Jehoshaphat... He's the, the king of Judah, and he gets word that these three armies are going to team up against them. And he prays to God and says, we're powerless. We're powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Keep their eyes on God. And all the people, it says, the men, the women, the children, they're there waiting upon the Lord, and God shows up. He sends them a message it says, the Spirit came upon a man named Jehaziel, and he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. So they've got this wonderful promise. They don't know yet what it's going to look like. God still sends them out. They still have to go out in the morning. 
They have to trust him. If they're sent out so that they can sit back and watch what God does. And then it says the king, he bowed his head to the ground. And all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord worshiping. And then the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites, they stand up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. They worshiped. And the army did rise early in the morning. They rose early in the morning and they went out to march. And at the front of their march, you know what they put there? They put the singers. The singers who sang songs of praise and thanks to God for his steadfast love. They went out marching and singing. Then it says there, And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Those who had come up against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab, they rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. For when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. (laughs) So God sets an ambush. The people are praising. God sets an ambush for the people and they end up destroying each other. And too often we would uh, hear something like this, read something like this, and think of it as like pleasant coincidence. You won't believe it. I got to the battlefield and I didn't have to fight at all because the army, they just killed each other. This is so great. But that's not coincidence. To see God fight, we have to look at it through the eyes of faith. Otherwise, the, uh, the clouds uh, the, of doubt They will shadow over what God has done for us. Have to see it through the eyes of faith. I've never been in a real fight. I've never been in the military. Um, The closest thing perhaps I've ever come was with my brother who's like six years older than me. So hardly a fight. Um, But I remember once uh, in first grade, Kevin, Kevin wanted to fight me. We were outside on the playground And I heard that he wanted to fight me. I don't even know why. I don't remember. But I do remember that I was scared. I didn't want to fight. I didn't know how to fight. And he came and he squared up to me with his karate pose. And I had no idea what I was going to do. But thankfully, my friend, he saw this happening. And he stepped in. And this friend he had taught Kevin how to fight. And guess what? Kevin was on the ground crying about 10 seconds later. And I thought, I'm so glad I know that guy. He fought my battle. Now, can I equate those two things? My first grade playground battle and King Jehoshaphat's battle? No, I can't. But was God looking out for me? Yeah, absolutely he was. For whatever reason, God did not want me to have that as part of my story, but he did want Kevin to have it as part of his. And remember, God doesn't just fight military battles, fist fights. He also stops the mouths of lions. He can protect people even in that fight. He protected Daniel. God heals the sick. We need him winning those fights right now. God calms the storms. He raises the dead. 
we engage in the spiritual battle of worship, and God works wonders. And if we're honest, we know that worship truly is a spiritual battle. Because we're battling to worship God in the midst of our fear and our doubt. To worship even when we prefer sin. And I would dare any one of us to try it. To worship God in those moments and see what he does. We dismiss small things as happenstance. When truly we ought to be using those opportunities to practice our warfare. We need to give thanks to God. To give thanks when he shows up in the small things. And so let me ask you, do you thank God after you've had a disagreement with someone? Do you thank him after you've had to discipline your children? Do you give thanks when you and your best friend are in a tiff and you don't know how to resolve it? Do you praise God in the battle and for the battle? If we can't do this in the little things, then we definitely will not do it in the big things. Paul was in the inner prison, shackled to the wall, and he sang. He could do that because he had been practicing his warfare. When Jesus was dying, having been beaten and crucified, what did he do? He called on God. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, it's finished. Paul endured prison by worship. Jesus endured death by worship. Worship is warfare. So are you practicing? Are you singing? Are you praying? Do you read your Bible? Do you come here and receive God's instructions in the sermons and his provision and communion? We practice here so that we can take it out there. We practice here so that we can take it to our homes and our workplaces and everywhere else. And what happens when we do this? What happens when we worship? Light shines in deepest darkness. We already saw in our text how God showed up even in the inner prison and at midnight. But that's not the only place we see it. In verse 29 of our text, it says, The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. This jailer would have undoubtedly been a tough man. He was a sword-wielding man, and he didn't have a problem imprisoning uncondemned men and locking them in stocks. This was what he did, and he took it seriously. And when he was awakened by the earthquake and he saw the doors open, assuming the prisoners were gone, he drew that sword to kill himself. He was not a man afraid to kill. This may have been an honor killing um, for having failed. Perhaps he knew the magistrates would have killed him for losing the prisoners. I don't know. But Paul could have let him do it. Right? Hey, if this guy kills himself, we're out of here. The doors are open, the chains are off, let's let him do his thing, and we're gone. But he doesn't do that. Only a man with worship in his heart could tell a guy like that to stop. Like, are you kidding me, Paul? Does God need to make it more clear to you, Paul? He just shook the building. He opened the doors. He unfastened all of your chains. I think he wants you out of here. What are you doing stopping the one thing that's preventing that? 
Paul was not afraid because he knew that God was going to shine even in that darkness too. So Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer did not go, (laughs) close that door right back up. No, he called for light and he rushed in and the light actually found him. It says he trembled with fear and he fell down before Paul and Silas. The jailer, think about this, the jailer was the one pleading at the feet of the prisoner. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they told him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then what happens from there? The jailer washes their wounds and he gets baptized and the prisoners, he takes them to his house and gives them food. So do you see how this works? The jailer calls for light. God shows him the light of Christ. The jailer washes Paul's wounds, and God washes his heart. He gets baptized. And then he invites them to his home. And I have no doubt that this would have been a hard home, a home of probably a lot of darkness. I could not imagine someone being married to a guy like that, a guy who beats and imprisons and maybe kills people. And so imagine the response of his family when they see dad and this crazy transformation. They see dad start bringing this guy, these prisoners to the house. Verse 34, he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Do you see this? His wife, his children, they're rejoicing because they believed? No, because he believed. They were struck because of what just happened to dad. God changed dad through an earthquake and suddenly he starts bringing prisoners home and taking care of them. The the jailer became the caretaker. When God fights your battles, light shines in deepest darkness. Even in that kind of dark heart. Uh, We see this in the gospel too. What happened after Jesus died? Well, he descended into death, and his body was placed in a dark tomb. And what did God do? He fought for his son. The light of God descended all the way into death, and he raised his son out of it, and the stone on the tomb was rolled away. Uh, We're going to look at Matthew chapter 28. This is just too good. Matthew 28 says this. Now, after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like light, lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he has risen as he said. And he invites them, come and see. God's earthquake can shake a prison open. It can shake the jailer's hard heart open and ours. And it can shake open death itself. Jesus was cast into the prison of death And he was bound up. He was shackled in that prison. And what did God do? He sends an earthquake. And then uh, in Acts 2.24, it says, God raised Christ up, loosing 
the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He loosed the pangs. That's chain language. He broke the stocks. God broke open the tomb with an earthquake and he busted death's shackles and his son walked out. God's light shines in deepest darkness. Whether you've been in a physical prison or not, I want you to know that God already undertook the jailbreak to get all of his children out of the prison of death. And one day when Jesus returns, there will be another earthquake. And our graves will be split open like his. And we will walk out. We may have to have people lay us down in the grave, but we will walk out ourselves. Now lastly, when God fights your battles, your enemies are left afraid. When you have an answer for death, when you have confidence in the face of uncertainty and in the face of wickedness, your enemies are left afraid. We saw that in our text. Paul tells the magistrates that he would not leave quietly. They threw him in prison publicly. He wanted them to escort him out publicly. And they were afraid of him. When the jailer was on the verge of death, and he understood his unconverted position, he came trembling with fear before Paul. When the soldiers guarding Christ's tomb felt the earthquake and they saw the angel take a seat on that rock, the rock that was supposed to be holding back the dead man, they were the ones who trembled, and Matthew said they became like dead men. They were guarding the dead man, but they were the ones looking dead themselves. And why did the people want Paul and Silas arrested? Because they were afraid of the impact of their ministry. They didn't like what they were doing. Why did the religious leaders want Jesus arrested? They were afraid of the impact he might have. That's why the Bible says that Pilate knew it was out of envy that they brought Jesus to him. The church is the immortal bride of the Son of God, and people have reason to be afraid of her. Why do people react harshly when Christians talk about so-called gay marriage or boys playing girls' sports or abortion? It's because they're afraid of what it means if Christians are successful in their witness. Now, I don't say so-called gay marriage to be mean or to be dismissive. I say it because I want to take thoughts captive I'm not looking to attack people. I'm looking to wage war against every thought and opinion raised against the knowledge of God. God is the one who defines marriage. He is the one who defines what a boy is and what a girl is. He is the one who defines what life is. Our government cannot do that. And when we say that, they don't know what to do about it. Because they can't control us. Our conscience is captive unto God and whatever he says. And when they realize that, they have no choice but to fear. The truth is they are afraid of God. When God fights for you, when he fights your battles, you are untouchable to your enemies. Does that mean we need to uh, go out and start a war with weapons of the flesh? Absolutely not. In no way does it mean that. The weapons of our warfare, as we read earlier, are not earthly. A Christ-like life will have a cross-shaped arc. The pattern of Christian life is death and resurrection. 
That's how Christ won. That's how Paul won. That's how God's people win. There's an amazing story. It's an amazing and tragic story about two Christian men who were burned at the stake in Oxford, England. And if you go there today, you can still see a cross on the street where their execution was. It was in 1555, a man named Hugh Latimer and another man, Nicholas Ridley. They were Protestants during the reign of Bloody Mary, who was a Catholic. And Latimer and Ridley were found guilty of treason and heresy. And when their execution day came, they approached the pyre where they were to be burned. They bowed down, they prayed, they kissed the stake. Then after they were tied to it, Latimer calls out and he says, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. They understood how God fights. They were not afraid of death. They called their pyre their candle that God was going to use to light up England. They were not afraid of going into the grave because they knew they could follow Jesus out of it. It was their enemies who feared them. There's a lot of uncertainty around us right now in our culture. We've got sickness, death, lockdowns, government overreach, cancel culture, political hatred, riots. Sounds like acts. My encouragement to you is do not be afraid. Stand firm. Stay at your post. Do what God has assigned to you. Do your job. Love your spouse. Raise your kids, read your Bible, wash your dishes, rake your leaves, and honor God in all of it. We don't know what the assignment will bring, but whatever it is, we are meant to carry it out in worship. When everything seems dark, do not despair. Worship God and look for the light of his salvation. For in the darkness is when his light shines the brightest. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will apply it to our hearts. We praise you because you are the sovereign God who fights. Thank you for fighting for us, for fighting on our behalf. Thank you for rescuing us through Christ, for fighting to make us like your perfect son. Lord, to be near you is everything that we could ever ask for. And so we thank you for bringing us near to you through the cross. Thank you for calling us your own children. We can be so near to you that you say you share your throne with us. What unfathomable grace. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. We praise you in the name of our glorious and mighty Savior, Jesus. Amen.